I'm Kim Schmidt, Managing Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps Podcast. In this episode, brought to you by Iron Solutions, host Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC talks with Jared McDaniel, who hosts the podcast Ag Uncensored and also farms in Texoma, Oklahoma. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each upcoming episode is released. Before we turn things over to Casey, a quick word from Iron Solutions, who's making this podcast a reality. Iron Solutions provides dealers with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. Their Iron Search and Iron Guides are all about managing your dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. Casey and Jared start things off talking about Jared's background and how he got into farming and how he approaches buying equipment. They also discuss what's driving technology advancements in ag and what will lead us to autonomous equipment and if those changes will mean a dealership needs to change how it operates. Well, Jared, let's talk about you a little bit. So give me a little background on yourself. I follow you on Twitter. You got quite the following on Twitter there. So tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to this point in your life. Well, I am a father of six kids and my wife and I, we farm and ranch out northwest of Texoma. I kind of took the shortcut to get here. I started when I was 18. My grandfather had a stroke and my dad, he was never around to farm. He was a veterinarian out in Oregon, but I was raised here and came back. And so I took over the farm. I grew up working on it. Plan was to come back and start farming after college, but I got a kind of a crash course start early. So I've been doing it for about 22 years now, I guess, going on that. Started out not knowing anything about farming or ranching other than how to do the work and have learned over the years how to do the management side of it. And we run cow-calf operation and we also raise primarily corn and some wheat and hay, you know, and of course, like what you guys talk about the equipment, I started off with basically junk, anything that I could get my hands on that I could make run. You know, I had some decent equipment that was left over from my granddad's operation. It was in good shape. But as I went forward, you know, I learned when you actually have to start buying equipment, (laughs) taking care of, you know, I got a, a hard lesson in purchasing equipment, how to keep it, when to trade it. You know, all of that I learned throughout the year. That's the one thing about buying and selling equipment. I mean, even on my side of the business is that about the time you have it figured out, something changes. I don't know when this is going to stop and every day is worse than the day it was before. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to mitigate this risk for the dealership as well as for the producer. You know, like you said, trying to figure out how to buy equipment, when to trade it and all these different things. How have you adjusted to that through this down cycle? You know, this is my opinion is I think a lot of people when they went into, you know, the good times of 10, 11, 12, you know, when the prices got really good, most of us had pretty wore out equipment. And that was a good opportunity to upgrade. And my mentality going into that was I'm going to buy something I could afford, not junk, but not super brand new, nice, essentially to survive the downturn because I knew that it probably was going to be a few years before I could buy anything nice again when the cash flow started drying up. You know, the good years lasted a few years longer than I think guys expected. Then you got into the whole Section 178. Everybody's going to, you know, not pay taxes, which that's a whole ball of wax too. But what I see in the country is everybody's pretty strapped for cash. You can make a payment or you can even bite the bullet and maybe buy one 
better piece of equipment. But if you have multiple units on your farm that are needing replaced, you're just going to keep patching them and going because the finances aren't there to roll that. The cash flow just doesn't support that payment structure right now. I'm curious as like you guys as dealers, I mean, because it's not like a flat line. Like you said, you sell a bunch and then you don't have a lot, you know, just the sales will be up and down, but you guys still have to keep inventory. You have to roll it. And I'm always curious, like, are these machines stacking up on lots all over the country or has that already happened? Well, I think we went through that. You look at 14 and 15, those were the years I always called that the purge, you know, and planners, for example, right now, there aren't enough good used planners on the marketplace right now that are on dealer's lots. In 14 and 15, you'd go to any auction, I don't care where it was in the country, there'd be five or six tractors, two or three combines, some tillage pieces, that kind of stuff, and then there'd be an entire row, like everyone in the county traded their planner in, and they put every one of them on the back line of the auction row. And there might be 10 or 15 planners all in one auction. And the reason for that was, in the down cycle when it happened, guys went from trading five to seven bucks an acre to where guys were, you know, had to be triple that because of the oversupply out there in the marketplace. And that cut a lot of guys off guard so much that they weren't going to buy a planner. Well, dealers, we're stuck with them. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do with them. We had to go out and sell everything that we had on the lot via auction. So now, fast forward two or three years into the future, we don't have any really good planners out in the marketplace right now that we can bring in. Like being a deer dealer, you know, having the exact emerged technology and the ME5 stuff and all that. That first generation in 2015, there weren't that many that got sold just because you couldn't make the numbers work. That downturn, then that trickled into where we're sitting at now, that people want those planners and there's just not enough of them to go around. So that supply is way high. So is demand, so is the price. You brought up planners. There's kind of been a revolution of you know, stock planters, and then they go hot rod them out with mm-hmm. whatever, be it precision, be it aftermarket bolt-on stuff. And I've done it too. I've also found that some of that stuff you put on there three or four years down the road, you know, whether it be electronics, wires, I'm kind of getting annoyed with some of that stuff because it's like the good old chain and sprocket days. I wasn't out in the middle of the field trying to rewire something. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I've seen it come full circle. I was a pretty early adopter of adding a lot of stuff on planters. But the further I go down that rabbit hole, the more I can appreciate just a straight stock planner. So I think maybe you'll see a little resurgence in some of the, you know, keep it simple technology. We can make things very, very complex that don't need to be. Right. I think planners are, planners are getting to that point. Like if you need to plan at nine miles an hour, you probably need another guy on a tractor. Yeah. I mean, I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get why you need to be a race car to try to plant the crop, but. That's, that, that's the funny thing about that planner, though. I will say this, is that that was the original selling point of that planner. But that selling point has actually changed now to where it's not the nine-mile-an-hour factor that, that's the, oh, this is so great and awesome. It's the simulation. It's the spacing. It's all the parts that make the plant come up that everybody was so jacked up about is so much better. You know, we have plenty yeah. of test plots out there where they've used less seed to plant the same number of acres and got more bushels out of it. And it's all because of the way the planner works. Oh, and by the way, it still goes, you know, Mach 1 across the field. So, you know, everyone's happy. I can attest, you know, the planners themselves have gotten better. But I think people don't give near enough credit to auto steer. I was strip tilling before we had auto steer. And, you know, the key was if you drove right on top of that strip and you found that sweet spot, your planner could be not that great. And you still had a better yield than if you wavered off of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
who do we credit the yield increase to? Is it to auto steer? Is it to the planner? I mean, there's so many things coming together at one time. You know, as a producer, I try to dissect that. Okay, where am I getting the most bang from a buck? Is it buying precision parts for the planner? Is it buying auto steer to the RGK? You know, what things am I purchasing to try to get the most return out of that? And I also, you know, I think this is a problem is you want to buy something and not have to go out every year, you know, the subscription model. I'm not a big fan of that. I'd rather buy it and be able to use it and hopefully not get kicked into the obsolete curve. Because, you know, you've seen that where it's like, oh, we've got this great tech, but in four years, we're going to force you to upgrade. That's definitely a a rabbit hole right there. I'm a big technology kind of geek when it comes to that kind of stuff. I love the fact that there's different things out there in the world that can kind of sort of, you know, I hate to use the word makes your life easier because it really doesn't make your life easier, but it helps you automate one part of your life, right? Ten years ago, I still used one of those desktop planner things, you know, with the big deal you put on your desk and it's got the big squares and you write yeah. for every day, right? And one guy showed me how to do it on Outlook. And he says, you know what, this will give you an alert, let you know when the stuff comes up so you don't have to remember all your stuff. Now, I plan my entire day that way, you know, just alert after alert after alert keeps popping up in front of me. I think the technology curve you're talking about is all leading to the end game of the automated tractor, you know, the fully autonomous vehicle. When I look at the autonomy of vehicles and start looking at automation and all that kind of stuff, I really think the labor issue that's out in, in the ag world right now is what's driving that more than anything else is. Oh, yeah. Give me your two cents on that. To the labor point, that's probably where we got away from everybody having eight 12-row planners to 24, 36. It's because, you know, if I can do twice as much and not have another guy in another track, you know, we had to conquer that curve by just doing bigger things. With automated equipment, maybe it's you'll have three eight-row planners instead of one 24-row. Yep. And I mean, I definitely think the technology will get there to work the kinks out. I mean, there's always going to be that thing of, you know, when a row cleaner hangs up that there's not a sensor for it. I mean, those things will happen with automation and then they'll develop a fix for it. Think of like a coffee maker. It used to be you plugged it in and a light came on and it made coffee. Then they figured out how to make it to where it shut itself off. Then they figured out how to make it to come on at a certain time and go off. That technology evolved out of necessity. Well, the automated stuff is going to go very much the same way. I think even my generation will probably hold on to the steering wheel a lot longer than people expect them to. I'm still of prior to auto steer generation, prior to iPads, prior to personal computers. Now, my kids, they've always known a tablet, an iPad. So to them, it would be secondhand to be like, you mean I can just run this like a farm simulation from my iPad? Well, that's silly that I'm going to go sit on a tractor. So, you know, they don't have that cultural attachment to the seat or the cab of a tractor, maybe that even I do. So, you know, I'm 41. So really, until you get the reins away from those guys who have the money, the older generation are even starting to be mine. I think you're going to have a hard time getting the autonomous stuff moved here. I think a friend of mine, Steve Nels, pointed out, you go to Brazil, you go to these big, giant other countries where the fields are massive. You'll see the automation introduced there, and you'll probably see all of the kinks being worked out and then brought back to America. I think it's inevitable. What will that do to the small towns? I mean, (laughs) you've already decimated most of the economy with, you know, a size and scale with which we can do things now. You know, what used to be, uh, I had six employees, I've got myself and two others now. I'm that much more efficient, and that ball just keeps going and going. 
to where there's fewer and fewer people necessary to do the jobs in small towns on farms and ranches. So that's kind of where you eventually end up. And there'll be some consequences taking someone out and not being able to drive a tractor. You know, that person doesn't cease to exist. Are you just going to find another job for them? Yeah. Me and Aaron have a bet that in five years that we'll have a used autonomous vehicle on the lot that we're trying to sell. I think I'm going to win just because I'm, I'm <laughs> you, you, you think there'll be one there. I think there'll be one used one on the lot that we'll have to take care of. And I don't know if it's, you know, like for example, like there's a company I've interviewed two different companies. One was called dot technologies and they actually have a machine that they're taking orders for now. And if you ever get a chance go on their website and check it out, but it's, it's a bar. The C dot run deal where yeah. it's like a module that yep. connects to there. Yeah, no, I think that's that's yep. probably a realistic approach. Like, why would you design something to look like a tractor when you no longer need a seat, you know? Yeah, you just jump in. It's just a bar that slides into whatever implement, and it takes off and goes. Yeah. Does its thing. There's another company called SmartAg, and what they have done is any machine that's got a canvas system on it, they can hook this system into it, and it has to have some level of auto track on it, and they made it to where it can be a grain car tractor. So you can be out cutting, and it's got artificial intelligence in it in the whole nine yards. And it knows the difference between, you know, a person and standing corn and this, that, and the other thing. But it can go between your combine and your grain trailer all day long. So if you're a one-man army out there where they used to have a, you know, you got cut, and then you your bin's full, and you drive the combine over to the truck and dump it in there, or mm-hmm. jump in your grain cart tractor or whatever, it, that'll do it all for you. And you can just stay out in the field and cut. And... They can actually bolt that onto an existing tractor now. I mean, the systems are there. CDOT run, they're taking orders now, I think, for the 19th season. But the Smart Ag, it's available to purchase now. Yeah. I wonder how much, just like Tesla and their self-driving cars, yeah. you don't hear about however many thousands of them are working perfectly. Right. You know, the thing that makes the headlines is the one that hits a human or has a wreck. And it'll happen. Somebody or something will get ran over by a, an autonomous tractor. Yep. And it won't be everything that's working. It'll be the one or two that don't. Yep. And I guess it's probably a question of just how bad it gets for that one accident. Yeah. On your side mm-hmm. for the autonomous tractor. Because part of when you guys are selling equipment, you know, you're selling just like what I view as like the culture of the cab. You know, you're in it, you're going to spend a lot of time there. So you care about the machine. If you are no longer selling an office space, you're selling just a piece of equipment. What does that do to dealerships? I mean, right now we're doing a lot of diagnosing of equipment before we even go in the field. You know, we're looking at codes that get sent back into the dealership. We're looking at all this different stuff. We have a whole group called SeaTac, and you know they catch all the codes when they come in from the tractor. They have some that are, you know, this code sent in because there's a significant issue that if you don't shut down, it's going to cause a major failure some predictive stuff that they see kind of happening in the vehicle. So I think from the dealership's part, you're still going to have, you know, engines and transmissions and and hydrostats and and all those kind of things you're still going to have to work on. We're just not going to have a steering wheel in the seat, you know. When I do my reconditioning, I don't have to worry about if the seat airs up or doesn't anymore. I don't think we're going to miss anything from the dealership side when I think about that. Do you think we're essentially having the same conversation that a couple of horse traders had they had heard or seen a movie article about this fancy steam engine that was rolling around yep. being demoed at places. You know, some guy used to build plows for horses. And he's like, oh, hell, there's not enough wood to keep those things running. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like this right. change has happened before. Oh, yeah. It's just it hasn't happened in our lifetime. But, the, you know, yep. I guess the closest thing to it would be auto steer. 
in yeah. my view. Yeah, you know, that yeah. that was a game changer. And it allowed me, whenever social media came along, to get on there and for hours a day talk to people. And when you're stuck in a cab for that many hours a day for so many days out of the year, you do something with that time. You trade yeah. commodities. You look on the internet. You know, there's so many levels of technology between cell phones and auto steer that have completely changed the landscape of what as a farmer we do. So even if I'm not, if I'm not in the cab and I'm sitting at home in an office or I dedicate that time to something else, I mean, there may not be much of a transition away from like the culture of what farmers are doing now. Cause you're essentially, it is driving itself. Right. You just happen to be watching the monitors from the cab instead of watching them from your house. Right. Well, you're still going to be uploading your prescriptions into your monitors. So you can still, you know, monitoring what your pivots are doing. I mean, you're still doing that now on your cell phones and everything else. Yeah. Some of that technology that you can start and stop or speed up and slow down and whatever you need to do for your pivot irrigation. I mean, you don't have to be there to make that stuff work. You get an alert that, oh, look, a pivot number, whatever's down. You don't need to go check it out. You're going to be in a different spot instead of in the field. And that's going to drive some guys nuts, and that's going to drive other guys hiring some kid to sit by a screen and watch and monitor everything that happens while they're overrunning the business into the business, you know? Yeah. And I think that's yep. going to be the biggest transition for a lot of folks. Yeah. You know, I don't know which generation will do it. One generation will seamlessly go to that point. Yeah. I think it's going to be further in five years. I think you're just too many diehards are going to hold on to the steering wheel for too long. But back to what your original question of the downturn, do you think we're out of it? I mean, $4 corn is kind of floating back in, you know, minus the disaster last week. (laughs) Right. I mean, we're at the point where we're going to start reducing over carryover and we're going to start seeing some prices stabilize and hopefully get into a little better marketing and margins should steady or at least improve. Do you guys feel like you're kind of coming out of this thing ready to go or what's your sense from the dealers? I've used the term soft bottom a lot of times on my podcast and I've said that pretty much all of 18 that we're kind of hit that soft bottom spot. We're not going down anymore, but we're not going up either. And as far as overall values go, I think the supply and the demand about the middle of 2018 has kind of hit that point where the supply and the demand curve have kind of come together. You know, one thing about farm guys, if they got a chance to upgrade some equipment, they want to upgrade their equipment, especially key pieces on the farm, whether it be their combine or their planter or, you know, their row crop tractor or something like that. They want to mitigate risk. And they want to increase their efficiencies, and they want to make sure that when they go out in the field, they've got the best opportunity to be as efficient as they possibly can and plant the best possible crop or harvest the best possible crop they can with the means that they have. I think we've reached a plateau on that a little bit. You know, I mean, I've got a 9760 combine. I know there's different things between the 70s and the S series, and Mm -hmm. they're kind of still the same machine. The newer ones are nicer. I'll give them that. But, you know, where I'm at and the size of my operation, like getting a bigger combine's not, it might shave a little bit of time off, but I'm not to the point that I can see the value in the upgrade. Right. You know, and like you said, kind of the soft bottom, or I think this is where guys are going to hold off of purchases until they get a little capital. That's my game plan. I mean, I looked at leasing. I actually leased a tractor this year for the first time. I've never been a big fan of the whole leasing program. But, you know, I had a four-wheel drive tractor go down, mm-hmm. so I leased one for, you know, I think I used it 150 or 160 hours. And that was nice. It was nice to have a bigger machine that worked, and I could just take it out and use it. 
you know, use it for that window that I really needed it. You know, lease values aren't bad right now. You know, when you cash flow it, I'm almost better off parking my older stuff while the lease values are fairly reasonable going and using a tractor for next two or three years. And then if I need to, when leases get more expensive, turn that back and go back to using my old stuff. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but from a cash flow standpoint, you may be better off at that. I'm probably not the norm, but I can't bring myself to buy a $300,000 tractor. You know, when I look at tractors, I'm looking at used two, three, 4,000 hour tractor that's been taken care of and, you know, possibly buying that and paying it off and, I look at salvage value as almost a zero. I know I'm a second tier equipment owner. I'm not going to be the guy that buys the new stuff. And partly because I just don't have the size. I mean, if I was big enough, yeah, I could see where you would buy that efficiency and scale. But I'm one of those guys that's like, man, I don't know how they buy a new one. I know that people do. That's why they keep selling them. But it's kind of a quasi weird situation. Like I look at new stuff and say, well, that's going to be cool to drive in 15 years. Cause that's usually where I'm sitting is, right. you know, 10 to 12 years down the road is when I'll get into that model of equipment. Well, I mean, I think to that point, like what you're talking about with the lease stuff, I've had that same conversation with guys over the past two or three years of, I can physically show you how taking this equipment that you have right here, parking it and leasing equipment is going to actually pay off for you. Is that because lease market's flooded? Well, no. I mean, it's just, I think it's the easiest way right now for guys to go buy equipment. I mean, like you said, if you buy a brand new Class A combine, you're going to spend, depending on how you have it spec'd out, anywhere from high 300,000s to mid 400s. And that's just wow. the box. You're not, you know, then you got to put a $100,000 corn head and, you know, almost a $100,000 draper head, depending on what you decide to do there. Yeah. But you got almost 700 grand in just one machine and two heads to make it work. We'll get back to Casey and Randy in a moment, but first a quick word from the company who made this podcast possible. Iron Solutions has deep roots in the ag industry with products for producers, dealers, manufacturers, ag retailers, and service providers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com to see solutions that streamline your operations, improve productivity, reduce costs, and speed your growth. Casey and Jared started their conversation talking about the down ag economy and how that impacted the planter market as well as what is going to ultimately lead to autonomous farm equipment and what sort of impact that will have on farm equipment dealerships. Now here's Casey with a quick message about moving iron. Hello, I'm Casey Seymour, and I want to thank Farm Equipment Magazine for partnering with me to bring you the Farm Equipment Podcast Series, Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmap. The podcasts are taken from my weekly podcast, Moving Iron Podcast. Moving Iron Podcast is a podcast designed for ag equipment dealers by ag equipment dealers. The weekly podcast focuses on current events and trends across the ag equipment marketplace in North America. Along with dealers, I interview the biggest names in the ag industry. Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Ag and Marketing is a regular guest talking about commodity markets and risk management. You can also hear guests like Greg Machinery Pete Peterson and Tyne Morgan of the U.S. Farm Report. If you are in the ag equipment business or have an interest in the ag equipment business, this is a must listen for you. You can find the podcast at movingironllc.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. Also at movingironllc.com, you can find information on the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from the Moving Iron blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. You can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you would like, you can send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron Podcast.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.
Thanks, Casey. Let's get back to the program now and listen in as Casey and Jared talk about the ag market in the Ukraine and other parts of the world and the opportunities to sell used equipment overseas. You know, I had this conversation with a couple of guys not too long ago. I was like, you know, we're talking about the differences in, you know, this downturn we're in now compared to the 80s, right? Which the 80s was like the ultimate of ultimates, right? You know, like, Every, everybody has their like moment that they can reflect and be like, it's not as bad as this. You know, we, <laughs> right. they go, guys, yeah. for us, it was the 12 drought, their benchmark. Yeah. The point I made to guy one time, I was like, now think about it. If you look back in 1983 and you start running the numbers, everything, and you got your combines and you got all your support equipment to go with it and your planning equipment and your tillage equipment and this, that, and the other stuff. If you're a large operator, you had a million dollars worth of equipment. You were a big guy, right? Today's marketplace, if I just get a combine, two heads, and a planner, I'm at a million bucks. Yeah. So this shows you how much things have changed. They had 18% interest on a million dollars back in 1983 or four or five. Today you've got, if you're still doing the same number of acres you were doing then and you were the million dollar guy, you probably got six or seven million dollars equipment at, at 4%. So you do the math and tell me how much interest is getting paid. Right? No. It's about the same. You start looking at some commodity prices now versus then, I mean, they're pretty close. You know what I mean? So how do you make all that work? Well, it's scale. No, it's no, you're scale. right. That's that's. I'm farming, I want to say what used to be the equivalent of like five family farms. You know, certain small families sold out to another one, then that one sold out to, you know, and I didn't buy them. I just, a lot of that ground is leased. Right. And I have to cover that many acres. So, yeah, I buy bigger equipment. And, you know, your point to the combine, I bought a cheap 9610 that smelled like mice in the cab because it was what I could afford. You know, and I I cleaned and I did whatever I had to to make it work. And I had an eight-row header. Well, you upgrade combines to a better one, you need a 12-row head to make it work, to make it efficient. Then you need another grain cart. Then you need, you know, you get into that cycle of every time you scale up, it's like a video game. You mm-hmm. level up, you can get better armor, but then you need a better gun. Then you need. Right. You know, There's always so, something better that you need. And those people that make that commitment, and I'm one of them, you buy that bigger sprayer, a bigger tractor. You know, once you get to that next level, then you kind of accumulate everything at that level. And then, you know, if you make the jump, you're going to have to take on more land. You're going to have to increase your scale of efficiency in order to cover that outlay capital for the equipment. And at least where I'm at, I'm comfortable the size I am. I'm not saying I won't ever expand, but there reaches a point that the risk of taking on all the new equipment, the new land, you know, I would much rather have higher commodity prices than just make more with what I've got. You know, I think that's everybody's pipe dream is just be happy with where they're at and not have to keep jumping through so many hoops in order to be able to maintain an operation, you know, cause I went from eight row to 12 row to, I could really use a 24 row planner, but I just make it work with a 12 row because that's what I've got right now. Right. Where's the end of that line? You know, yeah. cause we're, I'm 41. You're, how old are you? You're about that age. Right? I'm 40. Yeah. I'll be 41. 40, yeah, we're right yep. there. And we're getting to be the adults. We're coming into the time when we're fixing to have to start making these decisions you know, for the next 20 years. Effectively, the last two to three generations have just went uphill with this. They just right. kept pushing that deal, getting bigger, getting bigger. You know, there's a third world country that can get bigger a lot faster than we can. Once other countries pick up the technology and the equipment, will our food production be outsourced to the point that we can't scale up enough to overcome that? That's kind of what worries me. Yeah. I mean, you see it in the wheat market. Yep. Every year, there's less and less weed out here. 
people keep planting it, but then they ask, why am I even growing this? Right. You know, because Russia is picking up the slag. Everywhere else in the country that can grow wheat does. And, you know, that's one thing that's went away. Now, if you extrapolate that out and it somehow gets into corn and beans, the dam will open. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then we'll be the place that only grows specialty, you know, niche food crops or something. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so the last two weeks I've been in the Ukraine, right? Okay, and, yeah, I want to hear about this. Okay, so the last two weeks I've been in the Ukraine. First time I've been there, I've been dabbling in the Ukraine for the last, you know, how long have I been in this business? So 2006, 12 years, you know, I've been I've been doing this. So I go over there, and Ukraine is like Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana all had a kid, right? Okay, <laughs> So it's great. It's, it's amazing. Like but take out all the weather extremes, right? They're going through a drought right now, but they don't get the mid-July tennis ball size hell and 100 mile an hour wind weather effects they don't get that they get the oh look it's going to rain two inches today and it's just going to be that straight you know nice soaking rain perfect into three and a half feet of potting soil that's the scots guy drove by and dropped off in their porch you know what i mean it's like (laughs) it's like the perfect the perfect growing conditions right now like i said they are going through drought now but that's way out of the norm and what do they grow on that ground wheat they grow wheat and sunflowers and a little bit of corn, some soybean and stuff like that. But they primarily grow wheat. I'm driving down the road going like, why would you be growing wheat here of all things to grow? I mean, you're going to grow a ton of it. And it's going to be amazing wheat. But all the cash crops that you can grow out here, wheat and sunflowers. I'm not an agronomics guy. There could be all kinds of reasons why they do what they do there. But if you had good genetics, well, take the genetics we see right now. So... The last couple of growing seasons haven't been 100% ideal, you know what I mean? But we still produce two bumper crops in a row, right? It all goes back to genetics. And take those same genetics and put them in a vacuum and let them go. What could you do? And then how many bushels per acre could you produce of corn in that environment? How much soybeans could you produce in that environment? All those things start playing into effect, and it's just like they don't have the infrastructure that we have in the U.S., they don't have all the things that makes it easy for you to get your crop out of Oklahoma or Texas or whatever side of the border you're on at that particular time to outgoing ports to export or to. It just doesn't exist like it does here. So give it 20 years and what's it look like? Brazil's the same way. You know, yeah. they start building roads. They start building ports. As a producer, as a guy, you know, when I'm buying equipment, I've got to think, okay, this not only serves me this year, this is going to serve me for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know? So the 10 year cycle, no problem. But 10 years after that, where are we gonna be run out of business? Right. I think we're able to stay far enough ahead of that curve. You know, we always have been, but that's a definite threat. Well, yeah, I mean, know? but think about your level of efficiencies that you start looking at. I mean, the American farmer has been able to produce more and more and more on the same ground, you know, over the past 10 years. And it all goes back to genetics. but. It also goes back to, you can grow all you want to, but if you can't get it from your farm to the elevator, to the Mississippi River, to the Gulf of Mexico, to to China, or wherever it's going, it's pointless. And that's where our biggest advantage is as the United States goes, is that we have this infrastructure. You can run a train from L.A. to New York, and that's going to take that train three or four days to do that trip. Any other country... It might take three or four days to take that same train 100 miles. And then you have to worry about the stuff that's on that train even making it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the equipment dealers in these other parts of the world, 
Because if they're developing, that would seem like, I mean, that would be the wild west of selling equipment. Like if yeah. you're going over there where these guys are buying massive volume of equipment, like what's that like on your side of things? You could sell to guys here, of course, but man, if you've got someone running an old John Deere 9500 and you could sell them a slightly used American 60 or 70 series or, you know, whatever it is, that happens here. A lot of stuff goes to Mexico. And what, what I find funny is a lot of the stuff that I'm looking for as a second tier buyer, I'm competing with those other people in other countries because yeah. we both want the same thing, like yeah. nice used equipment. Do you think that's something that's going on in other parts of the world where they want our stuff and before too long, they're going to want our new stuff? Well, that's what you see now. I mean, that's what you have in those countries now, like Ukraine, since I was there. I mean, it's one of those places where companies like RDO and Titan, they have stores over there. They have full-blown AORs that they cover, and it's just like they would in the U.S. The biggest problem in countries like that is either you have a ton of money or you don't have anything, Right. And where that growth has come is that the people that don't have anything have taken their... Because basically after the Soviet Union collapsed and they had a collective farm and stuff like that, and say the collective farm, just for easy math, had a 1,000 acres. You know, they used hectares over there because it's a metric system, but a 1,000 hectares, yeah. which is about two and a half acres. They had a 1,000 acres there and they had 100 people. Everyone that worked the collective got 10 hectares, right? You grew your yeah. own crops on there and then you processed that. Well, what you're seeing now is all those little five and ten acre guys take theirs and they sell it off to this guy over here or lease it and you're starting to see the rise of what we would consider to be a mid-level or maybe even a smaller mid-level farmer that 2,000 2,500 5,000 acre guy is starting to kind of pop up over there now they got all kinds of new equipment over there but it's the same price as it is here depending on what it is they don't have that thousand hour tractor there like someone goes buys a brand new one and they run it for 10,000 hours, and then they want to go get a new one. That's how it works. And when there was the whole Belarusas and everything else that were over there, they would buy three because parts availability was so bad. And those Belarusas are known for their great working power and that they never break, right? They would buy three tractors, one to use and two for parts. When they ran, <laughs> when they ran out of parts on the other two parts tractors, they would scrap them and sell off the good one they have and get another new one. You know, And then that's, they would keep doing that cycle. So... As an American equipment dealer, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take a look at the number of new machines that I'm going to sell. How many used pieces can I digest back into my marketplace? How many pieces do I need to keep around to maintain a high absorption rate with my parts and service business? And then what's left is an arbitrage around our neck. That's the stuff that just sits on the lot that has a hard time selling because it's maybe not the best piece of equipment. Or it didn't come from a home that was the best place in the world. You know, like you guys know, like if you see a yeah. piece of equipment, it comes from Farmer X over here. Well, you know how Farmer X takes care of this stuff. And you may or may not want to buy that piece of equipment, right? But Farmer A over here, you're like, man, that guy's got good stuff. The grease gun never leaves his hand. And it's the best piece of equipment I can go buy because it's taken care of. That's the piece of equipment that I want to buy. Well, Farmer X's stuff over here just kind of hangs out, Right. Yeah. Well, Farmer X's stuff is grade A quality stuff in Ukraine, right? So I want to take that stuff and I want to move it over there. It's not a big amount of my inventory that I want to move over there. It's 5 10% at the most. I want to keep 90% of it here and keep that in my AOR and work that as much as I possibly can because I want the parts and service business. I got to have that parts and service business to maintain the dealership. So, but oh, that no. 10% of the stuff is like, for us, that'd be three to $5 million worth of stuff. And, 
that's three to five million dollars of stuff that I'm not going to pay interest on. It's three to five million dollars of stuff I'm not going to get a trade in on. And so it's a huge opportunity. It's China. It's South America. It's Ukraine. It's Eastern Europe. It's Northern Africa. Well, all of Africa for that matter. But it's not the fact that we don't have buyers. It's the fact we don't have buyers with money. That's the hard part. They, oh, yeah. they want to sell you like, well, I want the combine now so I can go out and cut my crop and then you can take my crop and pay for the combine. Well, what if you, yeah, what? <laughs> they transfer the risk. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I sold a Rogator. My first self-propelled sprayer was a Rogator 854. You know, there's about a, mm-hmm. there's a hundred million of them scattered across the high plains out here. Yep. Finally sold it. It was going to Mexico, you know, showed up, picked it up. And I'd done deals with this guy several times before. Liked him, never had a problem. Sprayer leaves, I get a check. And then I go cash the check and the check's no good. And the guy who gave me the check, he got stiffed before it got to him. You know, yeah. so like their origination point that bought it somewhere in Mexico, don't know where. They stiffed the buyer and then he ended up, his check bounced to me, you know, but that happens right now just going to Mexico. Yeah. You know, and, and luckily it was a local enough deal that everybody was made right, no problem. But yeah. if you've got your equipment <laughs> sitting in Northern Africa, Ukraine, you know, halfway around the world, that might get written off as a bad debt, you know, at some point. And it's such a catch-22 because, yeah, you know, all right, all right, fine, we'll take it over there. You can go out and harvest your grain with it. One of our representatives will meet you there, and we're going to physically watch the grain go from here to there and everywhere else it needs to go. Well, once it's there, a combine on a roll-off, roll-on scenario on a ship, it's 20 grand. Yeah, that was my question. You know, some of this stuff may be more expensive to get over there than it's worth here. So to do that, what I just said, that scenario is the same thing. There's a company that we work with, and they containerize stuff. So they can take, like, your 854 Rogator and stick it in a 53-foot container or a 40-foot container or whatever size you pick, and that's about five grand, about anywhere in the world to get you out five to six thousand bucks you can get something wherever you're going right yeah and then just put it back together on the back end and you yeah it there. And, and you hope to god that it all goes back like it's supposed to you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then you got you know like ukraine let's use that one you know you've got roll on roll off will be 20 grand plus to get it over there plus you have 20 percent vat once you get it there so it's a import tax so if you sell them a hundred thousand dollar combine you have twenty thousand dollars worth of taxes plus your $20,000 to get it over there. So now your $100,000 combine here is a $140,000 combine. You haven't made any money yet, right? Yeah. And you've got currency exchanges oh, yeah. and, and all that kind of, yeah. yeah. They, so do you think that if the demand's good enough that they'll just start building the stuff over there? Well, you already if, see it now. I mean, with the European marketplace, I mean, all of Eastern Europe, they get all a bunch of, you know, new John Deere equipment out of Germany and they get England and France and everywhere else. John Deere has plants all over the place over there to do all that stuff. But all that being said... They still have to get from Des Moines. They still got to get from, you know, every, all the John Deere equipment that gets made here gets shipped overseas too. I mean, the biggest problem you see over there is, is until they come up with a way to get good, solid used equipment, because they get stuff out of Europe to take over there, like France and Germany and England and those kind of places to take there. But again, we're talking like somebody's excited to get that 10,000-hour tractor that's never had anything done to the engine or the transmission or the rear end. That's a ticking time bomb, bro. Okay, you're doing cartwheels for that, you know. And <laughs> and I ride that edge. I'll get something that, you know, when it's got four or 5,000 hours, I think one of them, mine's got 7,900 hours. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm kind of looking at that 10,000 as the finish line. And 
this is everybody's pipe dream. I'm going to buy a good used piece of equipment, run it for 6,000 hours, not spend a dime on anything, and then trade it off to some other poor sucker who's going to have to just eat it. Yeah. <laughs> we were all playing hot potato. And, you know, I've been stuck with it. You know, I've got that thing that was good. And then halfway down through the race, you bite a big bullet. And I don't know if that's a healthy industry because, but, because eventually someone's going to left holding it, you know, the, the bottom end. I mean, the explosion in crop production around the world is whatever seed company decided to do one day is like, all right, boys, we've kind of matured here in the U.S., right? Yeah. Can't really gain any market share in the U.S. or Canada, right? In order for us to expand and grow and make more money, what do we need to do? We need to go teach the rest of the world how to farm, right? Well, in the meanwhile, while they did that, they forgot that in a lot of these countries, they're still farming with a horse and a plow. Or a lot of stuff's even getting done by hand. I went to South Africa a couple of years ago. This is how cheap labor is. You go out and cut your soybeans with a just a rigid head, right? Not a flex head, just a rigid head. What the combine misses with the head, they'll send out a bunch of people in the field to go just pick them up off the ground or pick them off the stems or whatever else and put them in burlap sacks and walk them back to the end of the field and then pick them up that way. That's completely inefficient, right? Like, that's so inefficient. But labor is so cheap that it makes sense. And that's going to continue. I mean, what, the U.S. has got 330 million? Like 1% of the population lives in the U.S. Yeah, we're a drop in the bucket, but we do produce a lot. Or half a percent, you know, in, yeah. in the arable land argument, maybe the other thing. But it's cool to think about that, where the food is going to go. Because you're right, the seed companies, they saturated this market. And they saturated it appropriately. I mean, oh, yeah. we as producers and farmers said, we want this, we want this, we want, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault. We no. were buying the whole time. Who, who knows what the future of that is? You know, I look at it from the cattle side of our operation. I can see where one day I curtail some of the farming for like corn and wheat and some of these row crops. And I just do away with that and go more intensive into livestock because there's probably a brighter future in that arena. But you also have the livestock industry that's been consolidating for 20 years or better. Yep. You look at the livestock numbers. It's a story that's mimicked in grains right now. Fewer people producing more, you know, more efficient, more efficient, better cattle. They grade better, more choice steaks. All the while, you know, less and less people doing more and more to the point that you've almost reached, like the coin you used earlier, a soft bottom where there's, you know, we're still making money and the people are there. And if appetites come back for beef, like the paleo diets and whatever Mm -hmm. fad comes in and everybody wants to eat, you know, meat again, well, there's upswing in that. I don't think farming's quite reached that, you know, because it's still decentralized enough that it seems like, I, I think I've seen it some out here, but when I look at, talk to people from the Midwest and places that do have the fertile organic soil, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot of people doing it in those parts of the world. Thanks, Casey and Jared. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, We're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels, including an Ask the Expert feature on our website, where you can ask him your questions directly. Check it out at farm-equipment.com backslash askthexpert. Thanks once again to Iron Solutions for sponsoring this series. Iron Solutions provides dealers like you with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. The Iron Search and Iron Guide suite of solutions is all about managing each dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your used equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. 
You can also keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. We hope you'll tune in with us for our next episode on August 2nd. For Casey and Jared, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.